And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10. Last week, we opened up the first of two oracles that closed the book of Zechariah. One of those is in chapter 9, 10, and 11. The other is in 12, 13, and 14. And that's what's going to kind of bring us to the close of uh, that book. In chapter 9 last week, we saw the promise of two kings that were going to come. One that would come in judgment. And we watched as God, uh, in a very powerful and detailed way, uh, fulfilled those promises through the, the, the conquering of Alexander and the Greek Empire. Just that reminder that God works in detailed ways through human history, even as he predicts it uh, hundreds of years before it happens. We also saw God's perfect promises as he talks about another shepherd, another king that is to come. Not a king who comes as a failed conqueror, not a king who comes like an earthly king, but a king who comes as a perfect king, one who is righteous, who is upright, who is just, one who brings salvation to his people, and one who comes in humility. And he gave details as to what that would look like, the one who would come into his people riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we see that again 300 years, uh, 400 years later, as Jesus Christ comes into his city in exactly the way that Zechariah promised that he would. But even those promises of salvation look forward to something greater. See, chapter 9 introduced this idea of a good shepherd. In fact, that's how chapter 9 closed. I'm sorry, how chapter 10 closed. Chapter 10 closed with this idea that God was going to give his people a good shepherd, one who would watch over them and care for them. And this week, as we open up chapter 10 and 11, if I could get my chapters right, chapter 9 last week, 10 and 11 this week. This week, as we go through 10 and 11, it picks up that idea of the good shepherd, and he becomes then the focal point for the last two chapters of this oracle. And what we're going to see in chapters 10 and 11 is this good shepherd revealed to his people, but ultimately rejected by his people. So if you're not there already, find your way to Zechariah chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 just to set the stage for where we're going. Zechariah chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word, uh, we ask that you would open our eyes as we deal with passages that are maybe not as straightforward as we would think of some that tell us simply how to live and how to respond. Uh, But as we think through prophetic things that talk about what is yet to come when the writer pens the words, Lord, we ask for your clarity. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we can behold wonderful things from your word. We ask that you would pierce uh, the darkness and the ignorance and the sin and the stubbornness that uh, so tightly encircles our hearts at times, and that you would reveal your truth to us through the power of your Spirit. And Lord, in that same power of that same spirit, we ask that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that we wouldn't just see, but that we would respond rightly and obey, that we would heed the call of the good shepherd, and that we would follow in his footsteps all the days of our lives. Lord, we need your help. We need your power to do those things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. In our minds, we have an ideal 
for various things. We're coming into an election year, and uh, many of you close your eyes at night and you dream of the ideal candidate. I hope that's not what occupies your mind. But uh, the ideal candidate is obviously just a dream, someone who stands for the right things and stands against uh, the wrong things, and someone who does that in the right way with the right experience. Um, But that idea of an ideal carries over into the workplace. We have our ideal job scenario. We have our ideal boss situation. We have our ideal employee. We have the ideal of what a class would be like, a teacher would be like, a student would be like. We have the ideal for what a spouse would look like if we were looking for one of those and what the perfect guy, perfect girl, perfect match would look like. And, And we think that if the perfect thing happened in our life, the perfect situation, the perfect scenario, the perfect match, the perfect person, then we would certainly respond rightly. We would cling on to that, and we would absolutely never let go because it's exactly what we've been looking for, and more importantly, it would be exactly what we need. And what we find in chapters 10 and 11 in this precious little oracle that we have here toward the end of Zechariah is the presentation of exactly what God's people need. The promise of a good shepherd, a shepherd who is unlike anything that they have ever had. He is going to be everything that the fallen and failed human leaders that have entered into the people's lives over the last centuries of their existence. He is going to be everything that they are not. And yet, when they are presented with their perfect shepherd, we find that that faithful shepherd is met by a faithless And that's what we see today, the presentation and the promise of this faithful shepherd and then the prediction of a faithless flock that comes out of that. Because the one who is revealed to his people is going to be rejected by his people. So let's open up chapter 10 first, and that's where we see the promise of this good and faithful shepherd. We see what this faithful shepherd is promised to do for his people. And as we open up chapter 10, the first thing that we see is that the faithful shepherd is going to be the one who provides for his people. And again, there's a reason we read Psalm 23 as we opened up this morning. So much of this goes back to what David outlined the good shepherd would do to lead, to guard, to guide his people. And look at what it says in chapter 10, verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation of the field. Remember, chapter 9 ends with that promise. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. That introduces this idea of God acting as a shepherd to his people, his flock. And one of the things the good shepherd will do is provide for the needs of his sheep. Rain is crucial to the survival of everyone everywhere, but especially in the Middle East. It is an absolutely critical part of what it means to survive. You can see on that slide behind me kind of NASA's satellite view of Israel and the surrounding lands. And it does not take any great geographical understanding to know that green is probably easier to live in than brown. And Israel is surrounded there on one side by the Mediterranean Sea and just about everywhere else by desert that is inhospitable to say the least. It exists on this narrow strip that is fed by rains that sustain the crops, that sustain the people. And if you read through your Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you will see this reference over and over to the early and the late rains, the idea that God has put his people in a place where they are fed by a consistent flow of water that sustains what is necessary for survival. That God in his goodness brings the rains at the right time, at the proper time of year, And it puts this idea here that there's a time coming when the people will ask God directly for rain and when he will respond. When they will ask for their needs to be met and in the moment he will meet their needs. 
And some people see this as kind of a spiritual provision that's coming, but I don't think, again, there's any reason to separate the two. Remember, when we started in the Minor Prophets, we started way back in the book of Leviticus. And if you don't remember that, we started in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus talks about the idea that there's blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. That spiritual disobedience was met with physical discipline, and that spiritual obedience was met with physical blessing. And so as we look to the future, the presence of the Lord among his people brings this radical spiritual transformation to their lives, which brings this unimaginable physical provision to the people. And so we have this picture of the good shepherd who responds to the needs of his people in a perfect way that demonstrates not only his love and his care for them, but his power. Because this is the Lord who makes the storm clouds, who is able to give them showers of rain. This good shepherd not only has the will and the desire to provide for his people, but he has the power to provide for his people. And there's a contrast that they make there. It's set in contrast against the useless idols. He says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for the lack of a shepherd." The idols themselves are useless, and the people that put their hope in them are ultimately left completely disappointed. And you look back to Israel's history, and over and over and over, they're tempted and lured away and and trapped by the idols and the false gods of the nation, Uh, particularly things like, uh, you remember, Baal, right? And he is the storm god. He was the god of fertility of the land and of the people, and the people were consistently pulled into that false sense of worship. God is reminding his people that idolatry is ultimately not only useless, but it's foolish, it's destructive, because they have, as their good shepherd, the one who actually forms the storm clouds, the one who makes the rain for them. And sheep don't survive on their own. Sheep are absolutely 100% dependent on a shepherd. You do not drive across the wilderness and see great flocks of untended fluffy white sheep Because sheep are dependent, they are helpless, and to put it bluntly, sheep are stupid. Sheep are not smart. We had people, uh, friends in our church up in Canada who raised sheep. And I'll never forget, during one winter, like about this time of year, he sends me a picture one morning, and it is sheep that are frozen to death on a cold night within 20 feet of the opening of a heated barn. Without being physically driven back into the place of safety, they died in view of what could have saved them. The idea of God's people as a flock of sheep is not necessarily flattering, but it is comforting because one of the things that the Good Shepherd does is sees to the well-being of his people. But not only does the Good Shepherd provide for his sheep, we see that the Good Shepherd protects his sheep. He provides for them and he meets their needs and he protects them. He deals with the threats against them. Look at verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. And I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. And from him every ruler, all of them together. See, the Lord is angry with the failed shepherds over his people those political leaders, those spiritual leaders who were supposed to be guarding and guiding the people, God is going to hold them accountable for their failure because the good shepherd cares for and defends his flock. And it outlines these various roles that the Lord is going to play. Not only is he going to punish the leaders, but he, verse 4, will be the cornerstone, that foundation stone, that things that holds the whole structure together and how appropriate is it that Christ is referred to over and over as the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the rejected stone, 
But the promised cornerstone, nonetheless, not only is he the cornerstone, just from him will come the tent peg. And that one might not be as familiar to us, but if you've ever been camping, and you've ever been camping on a windy night with the tent peg that wasn't sent very well, you know how important that is. And this word either means the peg that holds the tent from moving or the nail on which you hung your precious things so they didn't blow away, get dirty, get damaged. Either way, the image is the same. Christ, the good shepherd, bears the weight of his people. He he upholds, he sustains, he grounds them. From him will come the battle bow the idea that the good shepherd will fight for his people, that he is going to provide not only for their physical needs uh, and for their spiritual needs, but that he's going to guard them and defend their safety and security. Israel's history is one of constant struggle. How do you mark the passage of time in Israel? Basically, it's who they're fighting against. Egypt, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Edomites, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, their history is one of constant struggle, constant preparation for war. But there's a time coming when the good shepherd is going to be their ultimate source of security, uh, when they don't need to any longer be constantly poised for war on their own because he will fight on their behalf. Let me see that last phrase there. It says, from him, every ruler, all of them together. Now, does the ruler come from Judah like this says? And absolutely, we know that Christ comes from Judah. But that word for ruler there, it's not a positive connotation for ruler. The idea is that he is going to drive out the oppressors, all of them together. See, the Lord is going to defend his people from the false shepherds within, and he is going to protect them from the oppressors without This ultimately looks toward a day when Israel is not going to win their fight because they have, uh, you know, the right things on their side, but because the Lord is going to be their constant source of protection. He is going to protect and defend his flock from harm. What else does the good shepherd do? Next we see that the good shepherd empowers his people. He fights on their behalf, but one of the really interesting parts of this is not only does he accomplish the victory, but it seems that he will use his people as instruments and tools in that conquering. It says, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud in the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. See, there's a time coming when Israel does have victory over their enemies. But it's not going to be because Israel has better jets, because Israel has the Iron Dome, because Israel has the backing of the U.S. Army. Basically, all the things that Israel finds their security in now. It's going to be because, God says, the Lord is with them. God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I'll save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be, and it shall be, I'm sorry, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. One of the constant debates through this is how you interpret these promises. And this is one of those sections where if you if you try to take these promises and make them spiritual and move them to apply later on to the church, uh, that it becomes very difficult. Because the church is never called the house of Judah, and the church is never distinguished between something like house of Judah and house of Joseph. But what if you're dealing with the physical people Israel? Well, then it absolutely makes sense. Judah being the southern tribes, Joseph being particularly identified by Manasseh and Ephraim, northern tribes. It was how a divided people were referred to. God is talking to a physical people. Not only that, he's talking to a people that he has rejected. It said it will be as though he has never rejected them. 
Again, it fits perfectly if you're actually talking about the physical people of Israel. And it's not that we're trying to be rid- literally kind of rigid and that we don't understand the nuance in language and in uh, poetry and in prophecy and different genres. It's just that language has meaning. And this is applied to a very specific people for a purpose. There's coming a time when the, defend- when the descendants of Joseph and Judah, uh, when the people of Israel that God has rejected because of their rebellion, are brought back to him. And in that time, he says, verse 7, Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. It's not that these promises are just given to a people because they have the right DNA. It's these promises that are tied to the redemption and the restoration of a chosen people. A time when God's people's hearts are turned from rebellion and rejection to worship and obedience. And the final promise that we see in chapter 10 is that the good shepherd is going to be the one who gathers his people. Look at verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt. I will gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead, into Lebanon, until there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. All the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. It's like a shepherd who whistles for his sheep, and there's a time coming when the sheep will know his voice, and they'll respond, and they will come back to him. And this little section right here is so critical to understand as far as timing goes, uh, because what gathering is he talking about? I'm going to put another slide up that you're familiar with there, and it's the reminder that we are talking to a nation that was divided at a very particular point in time. There had been a unity under David and his son Solomon, and then there's the division. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and we know that that northern kingdom of Israel is carried away and defeated by Assyria in 722 B.C. Uh, That southern kingdom of Judah is defeated uh, by Babylon in 586 B.C. And you need to understand that by the time Zechariah writes this, that Assyrian invasion is 250 years in the past. That Babylonian conquering is 100 years in the past. These people have experienced the discipline of God that has moved them into captivity, and very critical to understand, they have already come back from that captivity. Zechariah is writing to a regathered people, so this cannot be talking about whistling for them and gathering them from that Babylonian exile, which leaves us with only two options. Either he's talking about a different kind of gathering altogether, or he's talking about a gathering that is still in the future at the time that Zechariah writes. And again, many people, good and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, talk about this as the spiritual gathering for Israel that's realized in the calling of the church. And I'm going to suggest once again that the language and the context make that kind of a difficult position to hold. The immediate context refers specifically to Ephraim. He's talking about Israel broadly, but again, referring specifically to Ephraim. Uh, You look in the New Testament, Ephraim is never a designation that's even kind of hinted at being applied to the church. It's a local geographical place. It's a physical designation, particularly pointed toward the northern tribes of Israel. And God says he's going to gather them in because he has redeemed them. He's not just gathering a people. He is gathering to himself a redeemed people that he has scattered. 
And it says he is scattering them or has scattered them among the nations. It, it implies this very broad scattering, much different than was just under Assyria or just being carried away to Babylon. Uh, there's this broad scattering that takes place. And that idea of being scattered here isn't a negative thing. And you say, of course it's negative. They're being scattered from their land uh, that belonged to them. And yes, that is true. They are going to be scattered because of their spiritual rebellion. It is an aspect of discipline. But that word scattered actually means sowed. When God removes them from the land again, he is not simply removing them in discipline. He is sowing them in the nations of the world. In other words, the people are going to experience growth as a result of this scattering. Does that sound familiar to anything? It should. You think all the way back to the beginning of your Bible in the book of Genesis and Exodus, and at the end of Genesis, one family goes down into Egypt. And in Egypt, a family becomes a nation even in a time of slavery and oppression. And over and over in the Minor Prophets, we have seen them look back to the captivity in Egypt and use that to point forward to a captivity that is coming. They have looked back to the exodus from Egypt, and they have used that to point forward to an exodus that is coming, not only the return from Babylonian exile, but an ultimate exodus that is coming that puts them under the rightful king who will rule over them. Places like Jeremiah, and specifically Jeremiah 16, that say the people will no longer even refer to the exodus from Egypt, not because it didn't happen, but because the exodus that has come is so much greater. He says there's a time coming when there's a restoration that happens, a calling out from the nations, a calling together of God's people that makes the old exodus absolutely not worth mentioning anymore. Can you read through the plagues and the deliverance of exodus and think that that's not worth mentioning anymore? Imagine how much grander this restoration that is coming is going to be. A spiritually redeemed people called out of physical lands, renewed and restored in their relationship with the Lord. And that's what he's looking forward to here. And again, the context determines the words that he uses. Why does he talk about Egypt and Assyria, but not Babylon? Because he's referring again to Ephraim. And Ephraim in the north didn't go into the Babylonian captivity. They fell to Assyria. He writes very specifically again. And the context makes sense of who he's referring to here. The language is consistent. The images are consistent. And not only in the immediate context, but all the way through the minor prophets. There's a time coming when the people of God who were scattered before and brought back together are going to be scattered again in anticipation of a greater end gathering. But how do you reconcile all of this? <laughs> Chapter 9 starts with these promises of judgment, and we look back in history and we see it fulfilled in the times and the works of Alexander the Great. Chapter 9 talks about a king coming in humility, and we look back in time and we see it fulfilled in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, we read through these promises of a good shepherd, restoration, an empowered people, victory over their enemies, and a gathering, but in there, it's implied that something goes terribly wrong, because to have that gathering, you have to have a scattering. To write to a gathered people about a time when they will come back together it seems to say that something drastic is going to happen again. Well, how does that fit together? And the answer is in the response of the people to the presentation of their good shepherd. If you remember all the way back in chapter 6, at the end of those series of night visions, uh, there was that crowning of Joshua, right? And this looking forward to the one who would be the high priest and the king 
over God's people. And at the very end of chapter 6, it closed by saying that all these things will come to pass if you diligently obey. These blessings come to a diligently obedient people. But what happened when the good shepherd appeared? When the Messiah came to his people, what kind of flock did he find? And tragically, the idea is that he found a faithless flock. There's this massive shift in the tone and in the tenor of the writing between chapter 10 and chapter 11. Uh, Chapter 10 ends with the promise of them walking in the strength of the Lord. I will make them strong in the Lord. They shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. And chapter 11, like that, opens with absolute ruin. Look at how chapter 11 opens. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar is fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Ruined. An image of total devastation in the land. The idea of mature trees being brought to the ground. Every now and then we get a little bit of a windstorm and it breaks off some pretty significant branches. But you think of all the power that's required to do that. Now picture that over every tree in the land. That's kind of this picture of the destructive force that's coming. The shepherds wailing because the good and pleasant places where they had their pasture lands are ruined. The lions themselves roaring because the thickets and overgrowth uh, part by the Jordan where the lions live, well, even that is, overdone, is overcome and destroyed. It's this picture of total devastation across the land. Those same areas in chapter 10 that are promised blessing and refreshment and restoration now are promised destruction, and it sounds an awful lot like what we've heard in the Minor Prophets before. Promises of this destruction that's going to come, and we see it uh, unfold in what Assyria does to the northern kingdom and what Babylon does to the south. This is very, very reminiscent of that. But it can't mean that. Again, because this is talking in the future tense, and those things are hundreds of years in the past. And so we have to ask, if those things are in the distant past, is there another destruction that's coming? And the reality is there is another destruction that comes on the land. In 70 AD, Rome comes in, Uh, and essentially permanently deletes any kind of self-governance in Israel. It starts with rebellions driven by messianic expectations, driven by oppression, driven by taxes. Surprise. And the rebellion pops up. It occupies various places in the countries, and Rome ultimately decides that they've had enough. And from the region of Galilee in the north... Uh, to the seizing of Jerusalem by Titus in A.D. 70. That's the image uh, over there to your left, a very famous picture of the destruction of Jerusalem. It's that time when the walls are not only brought down, but when no stone is left standing on another in the temple. To three years later, the falling of the stronghold at Masada. That's that picture on your right there, that mountaintop fortress, almost impregnable that they build a siege ramp up to, a place where you can still walk up to today and see the Roman lines around it. You get a sense of what was required to overcome this place. God says destruction is coming, and we look back in human history and we see that destruction does indeed come. And for nearly 2,000 years, 
Israel is a place ruled over by foreign people and foreign powers. Well, what's the reason? What's the reason that we would go from these promises of blessing to this picture of absolute devastation and destruction? Well, the reason for the scattering is the fact that they reject the good shepherd when he comes. Look at verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4. Thus said the Lord my God, he is speaking to Zechariah. Thus said the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they will crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. God is going to call on his prophet to visibly demonstrate the coming failure. Zechariah is going to kind of take a page out of Hosea and Ezekiel's book, and he's going to become a living sermon illustration. He's going to take on responsibility for a flock that is doomed to slaughter. He's going to feed them and he's going to tend to them, but they will not thrive and they will not survive under his leading. And they are a picture of Israel. Outside powers that are going to cruelly abuse them. Their own shepherds from within that are going to have no compassion on them. God says he is ultimately going to be the one that leaves them to the fate of their own destruction. See, that's the biggest problem here. It's not just that the outside powers oppress. It's not just that the inside powers are corrupt. It's that God himself is going to remove his hand of protection and blessing from them. When they reject his care and provision, he's not going to rescue them from the power of their enemies. Now, let me ask you this. What's the state of Israel at the coming of Christ? at the presentation of their good shepherd, the one who fulfills those promises everywhere from the place and the nature of his birth to the nature of his entry into Jerusalem. What's the state of Israel at that time? Oppressed by a foreign power. Used by Rome as a convenient military base and a source of taxation. What about their own shepherds? Sadducees who have no real spiritual understanding but who are content to get rich as they oversee the temple. Pharisees who have taken the law and turned it from a means of dependence on God and His mercy to a means of making themselves righteous. They turned it into a burden that the people could never bear and yet they called themselves righteous and blessed by God. What about the people? A people who see the work of the Good Shepherd people who hear the Word of God speak the Word of God. A people who come to Him blind but leave seeing. Who come deaf but leave hearing. Who come unclean but leave cleansed. Who eat because He multiplies bread and fish to feed thousands. And yet, when the living Word calls them to surrender all that they have and all that they are so that they might follow Him, who called them to pursue his kingdom on his terms, ultimately cry out for his crucifixion. They refused to forsake self and follow the good shepherd who loved and cared for them. And instead they pursue their own selfish desires. So look what happens. Verse 7. 
So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two stabs, one I named Favor and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. He takes the tools, the rod, the staff of a shepherd, and he gives them uh, great names. One he calls a blessing, beauty, favor. And the other is a word that means banding together. Two Bs. Staff of beauty, the staff of banding. And they're supposed to be those great blessings that come from following the good shepherd. The beauty of protection and provision and every need being met. Uh, the, the wonderful fellowship that should have come with them being unified and bound together as a people. But that good shepherd is only met with opposition. Verse 8, In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So practically what happens is Zechariah deals with three bad shepherds, and that then becomes one of the most difficult places in the Old Testament to kind of translate it to what that is supposed to mean. Uh, Broadly, the meaning is pretty obvious. There's rejection that God deals with, uh, but why three? Some people think that the three is just kind of this general rejection that God then deals with because there's rejection of the good shepherd. Uh, God pictures that rejection in the sense of him rejecting three shepherds. Some people see those uh, three bad shepherds as God cutting off the offices of prophet and priest and king, and I think that's tenable. But this is one of those places where we have to hold it uh, pretty lightly. The, the, the clarity here, the context makes it clear that there's a rejection of the shepherd, and so he cuts off all opposition. Uh, I wouldn't be super dogmatic about the details beyond that. But the picture of rejection is clear. And because there's rejection, look at what he says in verse 9. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff, favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant I had made with all the people. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. That wicked flock is now left to perish. The blessing, uh, the staff of blessing is broken. What's going to die will be left to die. And what's left over beyond that is going to be consumed by one another. But how do the people respond to that? When faced with the good shepherd, when faced with the rejection of the good shepherd, when promised the consequence for rejecting that good shepherd, how do the people respond? Look at verse 12. So then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. Zechariah says, I've been a good shepherd. Now evaluate the work. If I have provided and fed and cared for the flock, give me what is due. And if not, if you think that my work has not been what it should be, then keep it. You keep the money. What would have been the right response to a good shepherd? To give him his wages, wouldn't it? If someone does a good job, if someone fulfills every expectation of the job, the answer is to give them what they are due. And if they had not met the expectation, then you don't pay them. What would have been the expectation of Israel's response to her good shepherd when he was presented to them? To give him everything. All the honor, all the glory, all the worship, all the obedience that he was clearly due because he was everything that was promised to them. And if not, it would have been bad enough to simply ignore him, wouldn't it? But what do they do? And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. 
To ignore the good shepherd would be bad enough. To reject the wages would have been bad enough. They choose instead of simply ignoring to actively reject and insult him. 30 pieces of silver, that's how much it costs to replace a slave gored to death by an ox. They look at the ministry of Zechariah and they say, you are about as good to us as a slave. Easily replaced and ultimately worthless. Now you move that forward to the picture of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, and what did the people say of him? Ultimately worthless. Easily replaced. No better than a slave. worse than ignorance. It's an insult. A deliberate rejection, a deliberate degradation of the value of the good shepherd. So the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Sarcastically, God says, here's what you do with that princely sum that they valued me at. You throw it to the potter, someone whose work is constantly breaking, easily replaced, cheaply made. Apparently, there's a potter employed for use in the temple. And so in this very public rejection of the people's evaluation, the money is thrown back. And then you read through the Gospels and you see all of this play out once again. The good shepherd who comes to shepherd the flock of Israel, who teaches them, who feeds them, who guides them, who guards them, who prepares them for the coming kingdom, who heals their diseases, who promises forgiveness from their sins, and they look at the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ, and they ultimately say, no thanks. Not only no thanks, but a complete rejection to the point of desiring his death. And the value that's given to Judas in the betrayal of the Messiah, 30 pieces of silver. And of course, we know that overcome with regret, he tries to return the money. They don't take it. He throws it into the temple and kills himself. That money can't be put into the treasury because it's blood money. So they buy the potter's field, a place used for the burial of strangers. And once again, God's word comes to pass exactly as he said. Even in the Messiah's rejection... God's plan unfolds exactly as he said it would. How great is the power of a God whose plans are not thwarted by human foolishness, whose plans aren't thwarted by human sin, whose plans aren't thwarted by human rejection and rebellion, but who is able to accomplish his will through human history, through individual lives, even in spite of people's rejection. So what's going to happen as a result of that rejection? What's the result of all of this? We've already seen one result. That staff of blessing is broken. That staff of provision and beauty has been shattered. Now look at 14. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. People will lose the beauty of provision and blessing, and they're also going to lose the beauty of unity and brotherhood. It's no longer going to be a united land. In fact, it's no longer even going to be north and south united together. Now it is simply going to be a scattered people. And we don't have time to get into all the history behind this, but it is fascinating if you read through the rebellions, particularly in the late 60s and around 70 AD, the people who rebel against Rome, they find some initial success. They actually beat some legions in the plains. They are able to hold Jerusalem for a time 
You know what happens? They start fighting with each other. Even as they hold Jerusalem, there begins to be infighting and political assassinations. And a people cannot even unite around their hatred of Rome and their desire for freedom. And you can look at it and say, well, political infighting causes the downfall of Jerusalem. Or is it that God had already sovereignly begun to undermine the unity of the nation? See, there's no historical accidents. God is at work in every detail in human history. And then there's one other thing that is to come. And that is that God says he's going to raise another kind of shepherd. There's going to be another leader coming who, if you reject the good shepherd, will be the antithesis, the opposite of everything that the good shepherd was. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. There's another shepherd that is coming. Not just the idea of failed rulers who will come, but a shepherd who is coming. A shepherd who the people will call their shepherd, but who will not care for them. He's a foolish shepherd. Now, that doesn't mean that he is intellectually slow. Foolishness, in the Old Testament particularly, is pictured in the rejection of God and the rejection of righteousness. It's the fool who says there is no God. It is the fool who pursues sin instead of obedience. This foolish shepherd is the opposite of the righteousness, the justice, the goodness of the good shepherd. He is a morally corrupt shepherd. He will ultimately abuse and devour the ones that he claims to protect. There's a promise of a future leader who's going to be initially taken as the shepherd of Israel. Daniel calls him the little horn who makes great boasts, who is a king who is given power and authority over God's people for a time. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. John calls him Antichrist, and in Revelation, the beast. He is the opposite of the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the devourer that consumes the sheep. And he will cruelly wear down the people of God. But what does God call him? He is still my shepherd. Even the one coming who will exercise power toward the destruction of the flock has no power and no authority outside of what God gives him for a time. And ultimately, he will be overcome. The sword strike his arm and his right eye. The right arm being the source of power, the right eye being the picture of insight or wisdom. This one will be utterly overcome and utterly destroyed, not by the people, not by the sheep, but by the Lord himself. And that's where this first oracle ends. And the question is, how do you respond to the good shepherd? That's where we close for today. Because this isn't an Israel problem. Israel did reject their good shepherd. The problem is our flesh also wants to reject the good shepherd. In the darkness of the human heart, 
We want to pursue things that only the Good Shepherd can provide. We look for sin to fulfill what only the Good Shepherd has promised to fulfill. And still the Good Shepherd calls. Still he promises protection and provision for his people, not the absence of trouble, but the promise of his presence even in the valley of the shadow of death. So how do we think on these things for today? Three things specifically. First, we can be a people who rejoice in God's provision. The good shepherd of Israel is our good shepherd, and he still provides for the needs of his sheep. We forget that sometimes because we live in a world where there's always another need, isn't there? I mean, we we pray and we ask for God to provide, for God to comfort, for God to heal, for God to restore, for God to move in a situation, and he does, and it doesn't take too long before there's another need and another crisis and another situation, and we kind of constantly move from one crisis to another. That's just the nature of sheep in a fallen world, and we forget sometimes the provision of the good shepherd. This week would be a good time to reflect and remember God's provision in our past. Sometimes physical provision in unexpected ways. Uh, Sometimes it's his provision of comfort in a time of crisis. Sometimes his good provision is discipline when we wander. Second, we're a people that are continually relying on God's power. We read about all these promises uh, for Israel and her her ability to overcome enemies and her ability to find security. And over and over we're reminded that none of that hinges on them finally getting it right, them being good enough, smart enough, strong enough. You and I have the tendency to fall into that same trap of self-preservation and self-promotion, that if something good's going to happen, it's going to happen because I get it right. And yet we need to be constantly reminded that we are a people who when good happens, it is because the Lord enables us. Even the good works that we do, what does Ephesians 2.10 say? that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That God has not only allowed us to do good works, but that he has enabled us to do those good works and he has provided them beforehand that we should do them. And sometimes we think that we need God's strength to do the big things, to say the hard thing, to get through the major crisis, but we want to approach the normal day-to-day life on our own strength. Brothers and sisters, we are foolish if we try to parent on our own strength to be husbands and wives on our own strength, to be employees or students on our own strength. And yet so often we try to approach the normal day-to-day things in our lives as if we had the ability to do them rightly in our own strength. We are a people who need to be constantly relying on the power of God. And finally, we are a people who can rest in God's promises. Once again, prophecy so often polarizes polarizes us in one of two directions. Prophecy moves us toward either uh, wonderful debates that are intellectually engaging and sometimes Facebook inflammatory, or it brings us to the other side where I can't possibly understand these things, so I'm just going to be a pan-millennialist who says it will all pan out in the end. And, And the reality is we need to be a people who treasure these promises, who work hard and diligently to understand them because they speak of the God who has made precious promises to us. God has made promises to you and I to provide for our daily needs, to complete the good work that He started in us, to, as He leads us into situations, either give us the ability to respond in a way that honors Him or to provide the means of escape that time of temptation. And if God has been faithful to fulfill every promise in the past, then certainly we can trust Him to be faithful to fulfill those promises to us. And he's promised that he's coming again. And we can rejoice in the fact that the good shepherd will return for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Wonderful promises. 
kind of difficult understandings of rejection that's to come. Lord, I pray that those who are listening, who are watching, who will at some point encounter this text, will come to the place where they respond rightly to the Good Shepherd. Lord, make us a people who are content with your leading, whether that's in pleasant pastures and still waters, or whether that is through the valley of the shadow of death, because we know that you are good and that you are able. You're the God who brings rain. You're the God who brings bread. You're the God who gives life. So, Lord, make us your obedient flock even this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.